Jewish audio on Torah.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais Maaseh HaKarbonus, the laws of the procedures, or the procedure of sacrifices, Patek Shalosha Osa, chapter 13. Aleph 1, Mitzvah Aseh, it is a positive commandment, enumerated as one of the commandments, Laseh, to follow the procedure and to actualize, to do, Kol Mincha, all meal offerings, flower offerings, Kim Mitzvah, according to its commandment, Ho Amura B'Torah, stated in the Torah, which means, as he said earlier, that meal offerings or flower offerings are part of the general category of sacrifices. One type of sacrifice is a meal offering. And now he goes on to enumerate the various types of meal offerings in great detail. He enumerated them in general terms earlier. One of the meal offerings we learned is that the Kohen God of the high priest brings an offering every single day, a meal offering. What is the detailed procedure of that? Maybe Isorin Sholin, he brings the entire volume of an Isoron, a complete Isoron, and he sanctifies it. And we learned earlier the way one sanctifies something, they had various measuring utensils which were sacred in the Beis Amigdash. By placing this flower in this holy temple measuring utensil, known as the Isoron size, that sanctifies it. So now it is sanctified. Following back, he breaks it in half. He divides it into two. Another measuring vessel, utensil in the Beis Amigdash, was a half Isoron. So the question is, why doesn't, why doesn't he put two utensils of half Isoron to begin with? Why does he start with the whole utensil? With the whole Isoron? He says, even though it's brought, as we will learn, by volume of half, it's not sanctified by volume of half. The sanctification has to be in the large Measuring utensil called an isorin. Then he breaks it up into the two measuring utensils called half isorin. Or maybe Ima, along with this isorin flower, comes shleishes lugin shomer, or shemen, three lugs of shemen. Shenem, as it says, bashemen te ose, with oil it shall be made. Lahesif lashemen kiniske hakebes, to teach us that it has the same amount of oil accompanying it as do the wine libations of a sheep. He now mixes the flour, the fine flour, with the olive oil. Bechelta bereishin, and he then scolds it with boiling water. And he needs, he processes from each half isoron, sheish chalas, 12 loaves, 6 loaves. He, I'm sorry, he needs from each half isoron, 6 loaves. Nimsu chalas, totaling 12 loaves. So we find, interestingly enough, that the daily minchas chavitin, which the high priest, the Kohen Godel, brought every day, is equivalent to the showbreads, which are also 12 loaves. Now, how was this process? The achas, achas, ayunases. This was prepared one by one. The ketzad how does he work it? Machali lugin. He takes the above-mentioned three lugs of oil, and he breaks them up in revius using the measure called the revius. Why is it called the revius? Because revius means a quarter. It's a quarter log. So if you break up three lugin into each into quarters, how many quarters do you have? Three times four is twelve. So you now have twelve quarters, twelve revius. Revius, the chal perfect. It's amazing how it works. One revius for every challah. Twelve challahs, twelve quarter logan, or known as revius. And he first bakes the challah poquito, ma'at, abyssal. And then he fries it. on the pan. With the balance of the revius of oil. But he doesn't cook it or fry it. Totally. The expression in the chumash is tufine. What is tufine? It's something between cooked and lightly cooked. What we call in the restaurant culture, medium rare. He prepares this medium rare. And afterwards, it's fried to complete the cooking process. Okay. Afterwards, each of the twelve loaves is divided into two, not by measuring, but with omid. Omid is approximation. Like uh, the Jewish grandmother would give her recipe. Not too much, not too little. That half of each challah be offered in the morning, and half of each challah be offered in the afternoon, because the priestly chavitim are divided into morning and afternoon offerings. He takes the halves, and then he takes each of them and puts them into two, doubles them into two, faces, and then he breaks them. So that every piece is double. And he takes the halves and offers it with a half of handful of frankincense in the morning. And the other half is left for the other half of frankincense in the afternoon. But if it was the induction offering, 
initiation offering, he doesn't break it in half, but he offers it all at once, with the handful of frankincense, whether this way or that way, either way, it is completely consumed on the plane. Because the chavitim are completely consumed, nobody eats from the chavitim. Okay. Hey, minchas asoles, kates adoyonasis. When we talk about an offering of fine flour, which is one of the options, the Torah lists various options that a person can bring when it comes to a meal offering. One of them is plain flour. Maybe Isarin Seilis, he brings the measure of an Isarin of Seilis. Fine flour. A comma Esrenus, there's no limit, because this is a voluntary offering, he can bring as many Esrenus as he wants to. A kafi nidre, or whatever he pledged. The Shemen Aroyla, along with its oil, or made it any measures, Bisarin Shomigdash, using the measuring container of an Isarin in the base of Migdash, to sanctify it. But Nation Shemen Bikli places oil in the vessel. Yahakach and then Nation Olav Esasayos, he places the flour on the oil, places some oil in the vessel, puts the flour on the oil, Akach Nation Shemen Achar, Alasayos then pours more oil on the flour. Oh, Bailel, Asayos by mixing the flour with this oil. So it's oil, flour, oil mix. Yahakach Nation Bikli Shardis, he then puts it in an official. Ministering vessel, with chocolate sechashama and pouring oil into it, the shemesh and chila, and abolim shemesh yotzak, the original oil, the mixed oil, and the poured oil, hakel, the total should be legally isar in one log for every isaron. placing its frankincense upon it. The next types of meal offerings enumerated are minchas hamachavas, a flat frying pan, and a marcheshes is like a deep frying pan, like a french fries. Donuts. Nation Hashem and Bikli, the procedure is he places the oil in the vessel of the nation Allah Salus, and he places the flour on it. The nation Allah Salus Shemanach, he places other oil upon it. Obey Allah Salus and mixes it. Hakach, Losha, the patient, he then kneads it with warm water. Vayfais and bakes it in the machavas, either in this flat pan, a machavas, in the deep pan. Kepisha, not depending upon the particular vow, but there are various options of vows. Ophaisais, Esau, Pitim, breaking it up into pieces, the nation of Pichar is placing it in a ministering vessel. The Yetzik Allah Shashan, pouring the balance of its oil, the nation of Benosa, placing its frankincense upon it. Zayim, Mabin, Machavas, and Machavas. What's the difference between a flat pan called a machavas and a deep fryer called a machavas? Machavas, yes, Losha, or machavas has a lip. A butter shape and a solar rock and it's dough is softer. So yes, lost because it has a lip and he ate it. So the lip will prevent it from running out. Or machvas ain't lost machvas, however, has no lip. So it has to be a little harder, otherwise it'll run out. A butter shape and a solar so the dough is a little tougher. Conditionally, it's the kind of mechanical overflow and just pour out. The next one is minchas ma'afitandur ketsa. How is, what is the procedure of a oven baked meal offering? In chal, you see, it depends. If it's chal style oven baked, bayla sales by shaman, he mixes the fine flour with olive oil. The lush preparation man needs it with warm water, but when he bakes it, Breaks it up into pieces, puts it in a ministering vessel. also places frankincense. And here there is no pouring of oil. This is loaves of matzah mixed with oil, not with oil poured on it. Even the kikini, if it's more of a wafer look, he needs the fine flour preparation and warm water. And then he smears the wafers with oil. It appears to me that this is done after the baking process. Test the case of how does it work? Maybe like shaman, he brings a logo of olive oil for each measure of the sarna meshkan. draws it, the and does it again and again. Until he consumes all of the oil in this log. All the above four. Each isarn is always broken up into ten lobes. And if it ended up to be eleven or nine, more or less, it's kosher. But ideally, it should be ten. How does he break it up? As mentioned above, he folds it in half. And then he folds the two into half again and making it four. And following the fold, he separates. If the mincha, the meal offering was of the male koanim, and the mabdul places, he does not separate and break. And every piece is a kazayas. If they end up bigger or smaller, it's okay. But you're not a ball of a kosas, lehigish, lehmoshach, as a rakikim, even if he did not mix the oil into the meal, even if he did not fold the loaves, even if he did not bring the meal offering to the correct corner of the altar, even if he did not smear the oil on the wafers, shade it's kosher. Above, we enumerated the correct, preferable procedures. But if for some reason he did not follow the procedure, it's still kosher. They never called one way all the above was only stated. El mitzvah for the ideal mitzvah. Shakahi mitzvah, because this is the mitzvah. Yud bey say that Abbas Hamid Chalkesa, as he brings the meal offering, maybe other sales material. Basically, a person brings fine flour from his house. The clusters shelkesa in containers of silver, shells off or gold. A shami in makachas or other metals. Klishu royal klishu or something that could be theoretically used as a ministering vessel by Torah law. And if this was a meal offering of flour, unlike the others. He places it into a ministering vessel and the sanctifies it with this ministering vessel because that's it. It's the flour. But it was not just flour. It was the baked offerings. These are always processed, baked, cooked, fried, deep fried in the base of English. And he breaks it into pieces that we learn. Then the pieces are placed in the ministering vessel. And then he gets its additional oil and its frankincense and he brings it. The coin brings it to the altar and he 
places it. Bekeren during this. Marobis in the southwest corner, as we said. Connected Chuda Shokeren by the sharp point of the corner. Medallion, that's it. Masalikas called the Venusal Always be moving the frankincense to one side. The Kamis Rimakim Shinnis Rabbi Shamna. The place where there's a lot of oil, he takes a fistful. Shinnis Rabbi Salto Nishamna from its flower and oil. So he's got to take from the oily spot. Venusal Nakamis, he takes a fistful. The Kamis puts it into a ministering vessel. On the Kachar, the Kamis is thereby sanctifying it. The Kamis Shachil Kay Bishnei Kalim in a Kaddish. If this fistful was for some reason divided into two ministering vessels, it does not become holy. It has to be one ministering vessel. Bechazer in the Kaddish and then sanctifies it again. And he gathers as Kol of all of the frankincense. Venusal he places it. Fistful, which is in the vessel, Malay, when he brings it up, Alam is Beach upon the altar. Omeyah, he always places salt, and Nesnaab Gabi Ushim placing it on the flame. Bikli shards from the vessel, Bimchaskayim he. But if it's a meal offering of Kohanim, this was of an Israelite. If it's from a Kohen, Ainah Kaimitz, he does not take the fistful. Alam is Beach places salt on it all. Omeyah, Chakel Gabi Ushim throwing it all into the flame. Yudim Oketar Kaitzim Menachas Anikmotzes. How is a handful of flour taken from these meal offerings which are taken? Kedashah Kaimitz Kolodim, like any like any other situation. Peshet Etz Baisav Al Pas Yodim Kaimitz. A person extends his fingertips over the palm of his hand and closes them. So if you can see this, he goes like this. That's called fistful. If he only used the heads of the finger, the tips, and the sides, he should not cause it to smoke on the altar. And if he does, is accepted. If he took too much, for example, he spread his finger so he gets a massive amount, and he's a puzzle, that's unfit. You doubt the closing paragraph of this chapter. The bottom line is, is that a fistful, this handful, should never represent less than two olives worth. And if a little bit is missing, it makes everything else unfit. If you don't have the fistful and the frankincense, they make one, one another unfit. <coughs> we need both. Stop one another, prevent one another, make one another unfit. If we're missing a little oil, it makes everything unfit. We must have at least a log or a log for each isar. As we explained, Rambam, the laws of the procedures of offerings and sacrifices, chapter 14, Aleph 1, a person may pledge, or a person may vow or pledge, any time he wants to, he can vow or pledge to bring a burnt offering or a peace offering. And he can vow or pledge to bring of any species which he wishes. Of the five types of meal offerings, which come in the form of vows or pledges enumerated in the Chumash. And we already covered the various five types of meal offerings, the five methods of offering this flower. Furthermore, not only may a person at will vow or pledge to bring a meal or flower offering, but a person can also vow or pledge an offering, a meal offering, from those meal offerings that come as libations. We learned earlier that sacrifices come along with libations. Libations consist of wine and Meal offerings. So you can bring the libation from, sized by the regulations of the sacrifice libation. That works as well. One can just vow or pledge that as a free will offering. Using any style of the above mentioned meal libations. It's not a problem because it's all optional, voluntary. A person can also vow or pledge to bring wine. Wine is usually a libation that accompanies a sacrifice. A person can also bring it independently, plow, vow or pledge. Or oil. Independently, or frankincense independently, or there's another option, a person can also vow or pledge to bring etzim lamarocha, to bring wood for the wood pile. You know, the fuel was wood. Where does wood come from? Somebody has to bring the wood. So a person can also donate the wood. Because this is also considered a sacrifice. As it says, there's a verse. And for the sacrifice of the wood. So wood is a sacrifice. So here we have a broad spectrum of items that a person can vow, pledge, and donate. Two people in partnership could vow or pledge an offering, whether it's a burnt offering which can come voluntarily, or a peace offering which can come voluntarily. Even one bird of a young or older dove. There's no reason two people cannot partner in its offering. But interestingly enough, a meal, a flower offering, may never be brought in partnership. A flower offering has to be brought by one person. 
How do we know this? This is from the Kabbalah. What is Kabbalah? When the Rambam talks about Kabbalah, he's not talking about mysticism. He's talking about the tradition. This is from the oral tradition. Nowhere does it say specifically in the Chumash, but oral tradition teaches us that although offerings can come in partnership, even a single pigeon, however, meal offerings cannot come in partnership. What if a person left a meal offering as part of his estate? And then he died, and he has two heirs, so now the two heirs are partners. Then the two heirs can bring it. We're not concerned with the fact that we have two people bringing a meal offering, which we just said cannot be done. The answer is because here they're not partnering in it, but they're bringing as part of their father's estate, but was one individual. Now we keep repeating, neder o nedava, vow or pledge. What is a vow, and what is a pledge? Balid, ezehu neder. What is a vow? Ezehi nedava, what is a pledge? Very simple, and we've talked about this earlier. If somebody says, I take it upon myself as a vow to bring a burnt offering. I take upon myself to bring a peace offering. I take upon myself to bring a Meal offering, or I make a vow to donate in money the value of this animal, as a burnt offering, or a peace offering. That's the definition of a vow. In plain English, a vow means I take upon myself. The person accepts the responsibility of the act upon them. And therefore, very simply, if the particular animal they're bringing dies, their, their vow was not this animal. Their vow was an animal. The animal dies, they have to bring another one. It's the obligation upon the person. But when we talk about pledge, somebody says, this animal is something I'm going to bring as a burnt offering or peace offering. Hey, or, the value of this animal is a burnt offering or peace offering. Hey, or he says, this measure of flour is a meal offering. This is a pledge. And now he says in the famous paragraph 5, which every hater child learns, what's the difference between a vow and a pledge? Because one who vows, if he designated his offering, it was lost. He was in Disneyland with his offering, and his offering got lost. It's wandering around the rights. It was stolen. He was mugged, and his animal was taken. He's responsible for it, and he has to replace it. Why? Because he accepted, he or she accepted, upon themselves to bring this gift. The animal's gone, get another animal. However, when somebody pledges, he says, I am pledging this animal, the value of this animal, this flower. He may say, even if it died, or it was stolen, he's not obligated to replace it, because he's not responsible for it, because the animal, the sacrifice died. If somebody says, the value of this ox is upon me, to bring as a burnt offering, I take upon myself the value of this house to bring as an offering. And then the ox dies. And the house collapses. Being that he did it in money, he's obligated to pay because I guess at the time that he said it, it had value. However, if he said, I take this value upon myself as a burnt offering, conditional upon the fact that I will not have to replace it if something goes, because he verbally spelled it out, he's no longer responsible. Now we segue to an interesting law. We explained much earlier and that would be in the laws of Bias Amigdash, chapter 9, and 14, chapter 9, halacha 14. If somebody creates a house other than the base Amigdash, he builds his own holy temple, in which he wants to bring offerings, clearly that's forbidden. The question is, does it become idolatrous? So we learned earlier in chapter 9, it does not become like a house of idol worship. And I'm going to go back to chapter 9 in Hilchais Bias Amigdash, halacha 14, and I will read. If one transgressed and built a shrine outside the temple, and offered a sacrifice to God there, which again is a no-no, it is not considered as a temple to a false deity. So it's not idolatrous. It's just forbidden. However, nevertheless, any Kohen who serves in such a shrine should never serve in the Holy Temple. Similarly speaking, we learned utensils that were used there should never be used in the Holy Temple. Instead, they should be entombed. So this is the halacha that the Rambam refers to here. Back to where we are, Karbiyarna, we already explained earlier, Shaisa, base, base, Koslamigash, if somebody constructs a shrine, a house outside the Holy Temple, I could make a bonus for sacrifices, it's not considered like a house of idol worship. It's just forbidden. And therefore, if somebody says, I take upon myself a vow to bring a burnt offering to the base on the Gdash. The vow said he's bringing it to the Holy Temple. Instead, he went to his shrine that he created. Does he fulfill his vow? Again, we're not talking about whether he did a mitzvah or not. Obviously, he did a bad thing. We're addressing the vow. 
Did he execute his vow or not? Lo yotze, he did not fulfill the obligation. Because the vow was to the base on the English, and he didn't offer it to the base on the English. But if he said, If he just says, I make a vow to bring it to this house, and he brought it to the base on Mikdash, Yotze fulfills his obligation. And if he brought it in that shrine, Yotze also fulfills his obligation. Because when he says this house, who knows what he's talking about? Again, we're talking about vow laws. It's like he offered a burnt offering on the condition that he won't be responsible for it. There is the punishment of the cutting off of the soul because he brought an offering outside the base of Mikdash. That's clearly forbidden. Serious ramifications. And so also he said, I need a nausea. I take upon myself the vow to become a nausea. On the condition that when I'm completed, when, I'm, when I have completed my cycle, I will cut my hair and do the rituals in this house. In Gilakshan, and he did it in his shrine, Yotza, he fulfills the obligations of being a nozir. But he did a terrible thing anyway. It's as if a person vowed to torment himself, to abstain from wine, or all the other abstentions of the nozir. And he caused anguish to himself, it can't have the sanctity of the zeros because the vow was not, I will bring the offerings in the base of English. It was, it was the vow of, I will bring it in this house, referring to the shrine. Has interesting law, whereas we just learned that a burnt offering and a peace offering can be vowed any time, but chatos, a sin offering, the osham and a guilt offering, can only come as a reaction to a sin. Because if you don't sin, you don't have to bring a sin offering. You can't bring a voluntary sin offering. You have to sin first. They cannot be voluntarily gifted through vows and pledges. If somebody says, I take upon myself an obligation of a sin or peace offering, this animal, this object, this flower, this meal offering is a sin offering or a guilt offering. What, what does that mean? The answer is nada. Gunished. Layama Klumi said nothing. Because before you can pledge a sin offering after sin. What if he was obligated to bring a sin offering or a guilt offering? And then he said, This is for my sin offering, and this is for my guilt offering. Or these funds shall be designated for my sin offering, or for my guilt offering. His words are sustained. Why? Because he was obligated to bring a sin offering and a guilt offering. And when a pledge follows that, it's perfect. Yes. Similarly speaking, in 9, if somebody says, the obligation of this leper, he's pointing to a leper, and he says, this guy with leprosy, I take upon myself the commitment to bring his offering. Or, this woman who just had a baby, I take upon myself the obligation to bring the offering that she has to bring, a woman has to bring a sacrifice after having a child. Provided he can do that, provided, provided that that leper, or that woman who just gave birth, are poor and can't afford it on their own. Maybe, then, even though the guy who steps up into their place is a wealthy man, he could be wealthier than Bill Gates, he could be a Rothschild's Rothschild. But still, being that the leper or the woman who gave birth is poor, he gets to bring their offering, which is a poor person's offering. Certain offerings are sliding scale offerings. What if he took their place, but they were wealthy? Maybe on their carbon usher. He can't say, hey, I am donating it. I want a discount. Need discount. Doesn't work that way. If they are wealthy, he has to bring a wealthy man's offering. Even though the guy who is covering the pledge happens to be poor. We don't go by his balance sheet. We go by the person who's obligated balance sheet. You attend, if somebody says, I take upon myself the sin offering, the burnt offering, the guilt offering, the peace offering of Mr. So-and-so. If the guy is willing to have this fellow stand in his place, then he permits him to do it on his behalf. And the person who permitted the guy to do it on his behalf receives the atonement. What if he said, yeah, I'm with the program when it was set aside. Or when it comes to offering it, he says, never mind, I withdraw, I withdraw my proxy. He withdraws, he regrets it. He undoes his proxy, if it's a burnt offering or a peace offering which can be brought voluntarily, go ahead and do it, and he receives atonement, even though he's not willing right now, because at the moment of designation he was willing, so it's all good, but when it comes to a sin offering and guilt offering, the guy has to be with the program from beginning to end, he's not forgiven, until he's a willing participant from beginning to end, so if he now says, I don't want this guy bringing the offering for me, then he is not forgiven, if he says, I can neither show him, I take upon myself, like the vow of the wicked, what is the description here of the vow of the wicked? These are people who are always making vows, but they never pay. 
they tell a beautiful story on the lighter side, that there was a meeting for fundraising, and there's a bunch of people sitting in the living room, and they're doing a method in fundraising called card calling, where they go around the living room and they say, what do you want to donate, what do you want to donate, what do you want to donate, Mr. Schwartz, what do you donate, and so on and so forth, they're going around the room, so they're coming to Mr. Cohen, they say, Mr. Cohen, he says, $10,000, so they look at him and say, come on, Cohen, you, you pledged $10,000 for the past three years, you never paid a dime, what are you doing, he says, all right, plus collection costs, so he's pledging the collection costs as well. So this is needed to show you the vows of the wicked. They have to pledge plus collection costs. They make vows of being a nozir and they never keep it. They make vows of bringing offerings and they never keep them. They make vows of oaths and they never keep them. So if somebody says, I take upon myself this vow, he's ob- obligated to follow through in all of them because he's making a statement that he takes responsibility. However, if he says, I take upon myself the vow, which responsible kosher people take, the answer is he's obligated to bring nothing. Because responsible kosher people don't make vows. Even when we donate, when we're standing at the Torah and we donate, when we're standing at a fundraiser, we should always say, without a vow. In the Mishabar language of the Torah, it's part of the language you say, without a vow. You're not going to make vows. It's very too serious. You say, if he says, I take upon myself the pledge of responsible people, then he can take upon himself the obligation of a nozir or a sacrifice, any loose description of a sacrifice is considered a sacrifice as well. In general, we learned earlier that somebody who vows a pledge is not obligated until his mouth and heart are in sync. What does that mean? If somebody intended to say, I take upon myself to bring a burnt offering, that's what he wanted to say. But a slip of the tongue, he said peace offering. A lot of times our minds are racing, we're thinking one thing and we say another thing. He meant to say, I take upon myself a burnt offering, and he said, peace offering. Or he to say, this shall become a burnt offering, and he said, peace offering. But he meant the burnt offering. He said nothing, because the heart and the mind, and the heart and the mouth must be in sync. If they were not, it was a mistake. Mistakes don't become vows. What if he intended a burnt offering, and he said an offering, plain. If he intended to consecrate something with the language, which is one form of verbal consecration, and he said, which is another form of verbal consecration. That's fine. It's all the same. It's like tomato and tomato. Because a burnt offering is an offering. The same goes for all of these similar circumstances. That is when it comes to the above. However, is when it comes to making a pledge. And a vow and a pledge. In this situation, he doesn't have to verbalize anything. He can just decide in his heart to donate something. Even if he didn't verbalize anything, he has an obligation to donate. For example, if he made a commitment in his heart, that this is a burnt offering, that he will bring a burnt offering, that he has to bring it, even though it was never verbalized. Shandam, as it says, the verse covers this. Kail Nadiv Lev. Anyone who is willing of heart, Yiviyeha should bring it. All you need to do is have a willing heart. The Nadiv Lev is Chayav Lahavi. If the heart makes a pledge, it's sufficient. All similar situations, of pledges and vows of holy things, all take hold, even if the pledge or vow is in the heart. Here, the Rambam makes a very interesting, interesting blanket statement. He says vows, pledges, anything else that a person undertakes, consecrations, monies, tithes, gifts to the poor, tzedakah in general. A person makes a vow or a pledge, does he have to pay it? Of course he has to pay it. How soon does he have to pay it? Very soon. It's a positive commandment incumbent upon this person biblically, that he should discharge his obligations by coming to Jerusalem and bring everything with him. When? The first major festival that comes up. So if Pesach is coming soon, you bring it Pesach and discharge all your offerings. Sukkot is coming soon, bring it Sukkot. Shavuot is coming soon, bring it Pesach. Shavuot, Sukkot. Shanam, as it says, Obosha Shoma, you shall come there. Where is there? Jerusalem. Ba'avesha Shoma, you shall deliver there. The game, etc. Claimer, this means to say. When he comes to celebrate, when you come to celebrate, bring everything that you're obligated to bring. As they said when I was a kid. Three times a year. Every male has to come to Jerusalem. The females can come too if they can. But they're only obligated once in seven years to come to the children. But every male must come three times a year. So it says, Our sages say, To see and be seen. What does that mean? To receive spirituality and to contribute funds. 
So they used to say when I was a kid, when it comes to Jerusalem, come and bring your checkbook. Today nobody knows what a checkbook is because everybody swipes. Pay all your obligations to Hashem. When? First holiday. First major holiday. So the first major holiday is Cinco de Mayo on Martin Luther King Day. That becomes the first major holiday. Washington's birthday. They don't have Washington's birthday anymore. They have President's Day. What if the festival arrived? Like, hey, he, didn't. he didn't bring it. Oh, I forgot my checkbook. He nullifies the positive commandment because the positive commandment is pay as soon as you're able to. First festival. Here comes the first festival. He doesn't pay. Lost an opportunity. But he's not yet transgressing. But if three festivals passed, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, in whatever order they come, and he still didn't bring a sacrifice, three festivals passed, which he vowed, he didn't donate the consecrated objects or the money, here he transgresses a negative commandment. As it says, Do not be carried, do not be late in paying it. What's considered late when three major festivals pass? Now, here's a trick question. How long does it take for three major festivals to pass? The answer everybody gives without thinking is a year. But that's not true. Because it doesn't always take a year. Why? Because if you are a day before Sukkot, and then you have Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuos, it's in seven and a half months. So it depends on how the calendar is set up. If you're a day before Pesach, and you have Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, it's six months. So three festivals is not a year. Sometimes it's a year. More or less. Okay. He doesn't transgress this commandment until the three festivals of the entire year pass. And Lincoln Allah said there never could be the application of lashes for this violation of this negative commandment. Because we've learned this many times earlier. The only time there could possibly be lashes applied under certain circumstances is if something was done. If the sin, the transgression was an action. But here, the transgression was an inaction. He didn't donate. You need to act in order for lashes to apply. You can't not act. Therefore, it's a violation, it's a transgression, but there's no lashes ever possible. Okay. Yudal Higish Behemalim is Behemalim, he sanctified an animal to the altar. Yudal Roshan, Yudal and two festivals passed. Yudal Behemalim, and then a third, and then it, it, it developed a blemish. Ufdoh, and he redeemed it. Aldav Behemacheres, which is what the law calls for, that when a particular sacrifice develops a blemish, you redeem it for a non-blemished animal. So now, as they used to say in baseball, it's a whole new ball game. You think they had baseball in the base of English? Probably not. He does not violate a, trans- a negative transmission by letting the third festival go- come and go. He has a new count. Three new festivals have to pass once he makes the replacement designation. Now, does this apply only to men? No. Both a man, a woman, with not being late in payment because sacrifices apply to both men and women. Being late for pledges apply to both men and women. An heir. If somebody becomes the heir to an estate and the estate is overdue on the payment of a pledge, the estate does not have to pay right away. It pays when it can't. Any offering where three festivals passed and a person did not discharge the offering, the obligation, it's not that it becomes unfit. It's just late. They can bring it even late. However, every single passing day, after the three festivals, whoever he transgresses, the prohibition of being late. He's late every day. Every day of transgression. And the court is commanded to push him, to try and force him to encourage him to bring his offerings in the right time, because it is human nature, and when it comes to spending money, why spend money today? We can do it tomorrow. Here comes a fascinating law. There are certain commandments where the Torah uses the expression, by your free will. One of these commandments, interestingly enough, is a divorce. It says that if the marriage has, for all practical purposes, ended, then there should be a divorce. The man has to convey to his wife a bill of divorce. Now, in the good old days, when the courts ran... Israel and the Jewish people, what if a man says, I'm really sorry, I'm not interested in giving you a get, a bill of divorce. Maybe he wants money, maybe he wants power. It shouldn't happen like it happens. So there are certain remedies today, but they're very limited. Back then, they would take the guy into court, and they would start hitting him, beating him. Until finally, he would say, okay, I'll do it. They said, we don't want you to do it. Do you want to do it? He says, I want to do it. Stop hitting me. I now want to do it. So they stop hitting him, and he does it. So the question is, is that called free will? And that's what we're about to visit right now. Even though the verse says, by his free will, 
sacri- ob- obligated vows and pledges are something <coughs> that the courts can enforce. Kaifen, they say they can coerce him and force him. Until he says, I want to. This is called an attitude adjustment. <laughs> Whether it's a vow. He vowed and he didn't set aside. They can force him, coerce him. Until he offers. Anybody who's obligated to bring a burnt offering or a peace offering. The court can come in and take a pledge. The court can come in and take your laptop. Or your iPhone. Even though he doesn't receive full atonement until he does it with free will. It says free will. They could force and coerce him until he says, I want to. Now there's an interesting note here. That the concept of being compelled against one's will applies only when speaking about a person who's being compelled and forced to do something that the Torah does not obligate him to. In other words, a person could be beaten until he consented to sell something. Then the sale is worthless. He was compelled to sell. Or he's beaten until he gives a present. The present is worthless. If, however, the person's yetzer evil inclination presses him to negate the observance of a mitzvah or to commit a transgression, and the courts beat him until he performed this action he was obligated to perform, or until he disassociated himself from the forbidden action, he's not considered to have been forced against his will. On the contrary, it is he himself who is forcing his own conduct to become debased. Because this person only outwardly refuses to divorce his wife, for example. He should divorce his wife. The marriage is over. Why isn't he divorcing his wife? Because his evil inclination got the better of him. He wants to be part of the Jewish people. He wants to perform all the mitzvahs. He wants to rid himself of the transgression. It's only his evil inclination that presses him to act otherwise. Therefore, when the courts beat him, it is his evil inclination that's being beaten. And his godly inclination always wanted to do the right thing. So therefore, it could be considered a divorce done on one's own free will. The same applies to the sacrifice issues here. And finally, in 17, anyone obligated in burnt offerings or peace offerings, they take collateral, even though the full atonement doesn't come until he desires, until he says, I want to, people obligated in sin offerings and guilt offerings, here, pledges are not taken, collateral is not taken, because they are not experiencing atonement, and every Jew wants to experience atonement, so the fact that they know they're not, we're not concerned that they will procrastinate and carry and leave their sacrifices not taken care of because they, everybody wants atonement. Chutz, the exception here is Mechatas, Nazir, the sin offering of the Nazirite, because his sin offering does not prevent him from drinking wine again. So we are concerned that he's going to forget because if he can drink wine, then who needs this? Here, the courts go in and take collateral. End of chapter 14. Rambam, Hilchais, Masay, Akarbonais, the laws of the deed, the procedure of sacrifices. Hedek, Hamish, also chapter 15. Chapter 15 is one of the shorter chapters of the Rambam, but it deals with some complex and very interesting issues. Aleph, in order to understand Aleph, by way of introduction, if somebody designates a particular animal, a particular cow, as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering, for example, then its offspring is also a burnt offering. That's kind of a given. So that if that animal has an offspring, then that offspring becomes like it. Here comes this scenario, however, if upon designation, when somebody says, the offspring of this animal is a burnt offering, but the animal itself, will be a peace offering. His words will hold. Why? Commentaries explain the reason why is because he designated the offspring before he designated the animal. So therefore, the offspring was already designated when its mother was designated. Otherwise, the mother would automatically cover the offspring as well. The other way around, he said, this animal is a peace offering. And its offspring is a burnt offering. So first he designated the animal as a peace offering. Automatically, its offspring should become a peace offering. However, he says it is a burnt offering. If this was his intention, then his words hold because this is the way he stated it. However, and this is a very important law, there is a rule in Jewish life called toch that if somebody verbalizes something and immediately, within a very short period of time, he says, no, I didn't mean it, or I meant something else, toch within the time span that it says to say three or four words, shalom aleichem, or shalom alecha, rabbi, good morning, rabbi, or others say shalom alecha, rabbi, umori, good morning, my rabbi, my teacher, which is chikshak, if somebody changes their mind immediately, then their mind is changed as a rule. They can correct, amend what they said. That's in the kachniskabin, that's what he meant. 
However, if after he made the decision in his heart to do something else, and he verbalized it as well, what did he decide in his heart and what did he verbalize? He's suffering. Chazar Bayi then regrets. He says, And the offspring should be a burnt offering, different. Even though he retracted and changed it immediately within the time it would take to say those three or four words of Shalom Rabbi, the offspring remains a peace offering. The change does not take effect. Why? And here comes the rule. Because when it comes to the holy, there is no retraction. Even immediately, you can't retract the holy. And in his commentary to the Mishnah, the Rambam explains that in general, when somebody wants to retract the statements immediately, no problem, it's effective. However, there are several categories where it doesn't work. One of them is marriage, the other is divorce, the acceptance of idols, false divinity, blasphemy, and the consecration of sacrifices, which is our case here. And the transfer of holiness from one animal to the other, where retraction is not possible. So therefore, in our case, if he thought it, and said it, and meant it, even though he immediately regretted it, the regret, the retraction doesn't work. What originally he says takes hold, and that is the law here. Therefore, as long as he said it and meant it, that's what it becomes. Bayes. Now we go to a law further, which we touched upon in other situations, in t- similar situations. So, amen, if somebody says, Yodosh Zu'ela, the forearm of this animal is designated as a burnt offering. He's only designating the forearm. Eiragla Zu'ela, or the foot, the leg of this animal is a burnt offering. How do you offer an arm or a leg as a burnt offering? It can cost you an arm and a leg. Timacha the only way to do it is, it is sold to a fund which people who bring burnt offerings purchase animals from. It becomes an animal which will be used by someone else for a burnt offering. And the money that he gets for it, he can get retail with the exception of the value of that arm or leg. Because that he pledged. So he discounts it, the value of the arm or the leg. Now there is another problem. What's the problem? The guy who purchases that animal doesn't really purchase a whole animal because the arm or the leg already belongs to someone else as an offering. And when you bring an offering, the whole animal has to be yours. The only way it works, this comes from the Jerusalem, I believe, is if the person who vowed to bring this offering that he's not purchasing, vowed to bring an offering for a set price, and he paid its set price, so his vow only included so much and so much of this offering. Therefore, the fact that this other guy owns an arm or a leg is okay. Because we learned earlier that partnership is okay. However, and we learned this earlier, if somebody says, the heart of this animal, or the head of this animal, is designated as a burnt offering, an animal can't live without a heart, and an animal can't live without a head, who being that that limb, that body part, is something which is connected to the very life of the animal, by verbalizing the heart is a burnt offering, or by verbalizing the head is a burnt offering. The entire animal becomes consecrated to a burnt offering. Because you can't separate the heart or the head from the animal and have it live. How does all this apply to a bird, to a dove? He sanctified one limb of a bird. And he's a suffix, so in the debate in the Talmud, there is doubt in the Scottish Kula, in the Scottish, whether the sanctification spreads to the entire bird or not, and it remains unresolved. Gimel, Ha'imer, next scenario, if somebody says, This animal is half burnt offering, half peace offering. Now we know that a burnt offering and peace offering, as we learned, their rules are worlds apart. He takes one animal and he says it's 50-50. Half burnt offering, half peace offering. Kocho, it becomes sanctified. Holy it is, but it can't be offered. Because you can't offer a half-half. Ela, Tira, the only solution is it could pasture, it could wander and pasture and walk around. Until a blemish develops. Once it's blemished, it cannot be brought as a sacrifice. One may not cause a blemish, but the blemish has to happen on its own. And then the blemished animal should be sold. Usually the sale price could be okay because the halachic blemish does not necessarily radically diminish the value. So you sell the animal. Now you have cash. So he sells the animal for 20 shalim, 20 slayim. So 10 is designated towards a burnt offering. And the other half is a peace offering. And everybody's happy. So you couldn't offer the animal. What you can do is have it run around until it becomes blemished, sell it, split the proceeds. Now, the plot thickens. What if this person was obligated to bring a sin offering? Because we learned earlier that you can never pledge a sin offering unless you're obligated. So this person was obligated to be and he said, he didn't say, I'm consecrating this animal as a sin offering. That would be too easy. He said, half this animal is a sin offering. And the other half is either a burnt or peace offering. Or, next scenario, he said, first he said, half this animal is a burnt offering, or peace offering. and then he said, and half is a sin offering. This is a problem because you can't bring this as a sacrifice. Yet it has the super sanctity of a sin offering. Remember we learned again and again that sin offerings have a much greater sanctity than any other offerings. And the only solution is that the animal 
will die. How does this work? Not that he kills it, but in the laws of what happens to the sin offering, it will be explained exactly how the animal is caused to die, and the animal may not be sacrificed. It has to be set up in a situation where it will die on its own. Next scenario, an animal belonging to partners. There are two people who are partners in an animal. This is a very interesting scenario, if you like legalese. Two partners in an animal. One sanctified his half. So now you have a half-sanctified animal, because the other partner didn't sanctify it. And now the original guy went and bought the second half from his partner. The sanctified the second half. So now you have both halves are sanctified. The question is, can this take hold? The answer is yes, no problem. Not only did it become sacred, but it may be offered. But the question is, wouldn't you say it can't be offered because earlier it was only a half a sacrifice? And therefore, half a sacrifice is not a sacrifice. Therefore, the law is it can't be offered. Perhaps the can't be offered status carries forth into the future and it always can't be offered? No. Even though in the beginning it was, so to speak, impossible to offer because only half was sanctified, and this is called dechuya, like pushed off. It's not an essential pushing off because there's nothing wrong with this animal other than the fact that only half of it is holy. Even though it becomes a monetary sanctity, however, there's something else that exists in this situation. Because this animal is a living being, living beings go through transformations. A living being does not become permanently pushed off. Permanently not possible to bring as a sacrifice. Now it's possible to bring the whole thing because he bought the second half and sanctified it. He can offer this as a sacrifice. Now in the last two words, the Rambam in Halacha 4 refers to another Halacha. What does the Halacha say? That if somebody designates an animal as a sacrifice and then he decides, no, I want to set aside another in its place. This is called Tumura. He wants to replace it. It could be because he wants to do, replace it with an animal that's cheaper. He wants to use an animal that's beat up maybe. Or he wants to use an animal that's better. It doesn't matter. The Chumash says, Bein tov bein ra, whether for the good or for the bad. Lo, this is language of the Chumash, lo yimirendo, he may not exchange it. The Torah doesn't want you exchanging sacrifices. What if a person doesn't listen and does it anyway? He exchanges it. He says, this animal will no longer be a sacrifice. I'm putting this one in its place. What is the halacha? It's a posik in Chumash. V'hoya hu utmurato kodesh. Then both become holy. The second one takes on the holiness. The first one doesn't lose its holiness. And that's the last two words here. The whole sets mura, and he affects an exchange as well, where the second one could become holy as well. Hey, number five, paragraph five, if somebody says, the value, the money, the worth of this animal is a burnt offering. Or this is dedicated towards a burnt offering. So what happens? What becomes a burnt offering? The money or the animal? Good question. The answer is that we learned all these laws kind of earlier in the laws of consecration in one form or another. If this particular animal, with all of its details, was fit to be offered, which means it's a kosher animal, it doesn't have anything about it that makes it impossible to offer, it's all good, then the sanctity falls upon its body. Because that's the way it is. Any declaration of sanctity made Regarding an animal that can become a sacrifice, becomes a sacrifice. The the animal itself, should be brought as a burnt offering. However, if for some reason it's not fit to become a sacrifice, for whatever reason, it's blemished, it should be sold. The funds one receives for the sale. With these funds, one should purchase an animal and bring it as a burnt offering. But the first preference always is that the animal itself becomes the sacrifice. Vav 6. What if Omar, somebody says, regarding an impure animal, somebody designates, somebody sanctifies a horse or a mule, these species, these types of animals. And he says this is a sacrifice. Sanctity cannot even rest on those animals. Because they can't even, you can't even talk about this vernacular. It, it, it doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't take hold. If he says, these are a burnt offering, he might as well have said nothing. As we explained, the laws of that which is prohibited to be brought upon the altar. Non-kosher species animal cannot become sacrifices. So therefore, he might as well have said nothing. As my teacher told me when I was an adolescent, and we were learning that there are certain marriages that can never happen, and if somebody marries that person whom he can't marry, nothing happens. He says, I'll give you an example. What if somebody says to his doorknob on the door, I'm marrying my doorknob. Does he need a divorce? You can't marry your doorknob. Just like you can't marry your doorknob, you can't marry certain categories of people. Making an impure animal a sacrifice is like marrying your doorknob. You can't marry a doorknob. doesn't work that way. If you don't like that, by the way, you can write a letter to my teacher. Made an impression on my adolescent mind. Every time I see a doorknob, I think of that. That's why I'm in therapy. <laughs> 
Okay. As explained in the laws of forbidden objects to be brought on the altar. All if he said, had a what if he looked at a horse or a mule? And he said, this is designated for the needs of a burnt offering. That's no problem. Horses and mules have value. You sell them. Their money brings an offering. Interesting, the only animal that cannot be sold, we learned earlier, and be brought and its money be designated as an offering, is the sale of a dog. Woof, woof. For some reason, the Torah designated the dog. Other than that, it's okay. Seven, or eight, if somebody says, and we learned similar laws to this, the funds that I will get from this cow should be designated to a burnt offering, for the next 30 days. So that if this cow is sold for the next 30 days, the money becomes a burnt offering, but if 30 days elapse, on the 31st day, it becomes not a burnt offering, but a peace offering. So there's a 30-day condition. 30 days, up to 30 days, the funds will be used for a burnt offering. After 30 days, the funds are designated for peace offering. Aisha Omar, or similar scenario. He said, it's money. Shlishlam will go to a peace offering. Call Shlishim for the first 30 days. Allah Shlishim Yemen after 30 days, lay up for a burnt offering. Dvar of Kayomim, his words take hold. Meaning, what he said happens. And if he offers its funds within 30 days, maybe one commission another. He has to take the animal with which he purchase this, with the money that he purchased the animal with, yes, take that animal, and bring the gift, the offering that he pledged. That's if it was up to 30 days, but if it's after 30 days, maybe he have to keep his pledge. The closing paragraph of chapter 15. What if his animal was carrying an offspring, pregnant, and he said, he says, listen, if my animal has a male offspring, then, as the halacha requires, we're going to make this a burnt offering. But if it's a female, we're going to make it a peace offering. Different offerings have to be different genders. If it gave birth to a male, then he should bring a burnt offering. Yo, the if it gave birth to a female, Tikrav, Ziv Cheshlam, it should become a peace offering. Everybody is good, no problem. But the plot thickens. Yo, the Zachar and the Kaiba, what if he had one of each? No problem. Hazachar, Yikrav, the male should become a burnt offering. Back the Kaiba, Ziv Cheshlam, and the female should become a peace offering. Perfect. Yo, the Shnei but if it gave birth to two male offspring, now we got a problem. Echad Yikrav, one becomes the burnt offering, no problem. Vashani, but the second, Yimachal, the Sarchay, should be sold for burnt offerings. The Damachul, and its money is everyday money. The same thing applies if it is two females born. One becomes a shlamim. The second one is sold for shlamim. Because shlamim requires a female. And its money is everyday money. What if it gave birth to an offspring whose sex is not determinable? Or is an androgynous? It's not holy. It's mundane because it's not fit to be holy. What if somebody sanctifies an offspring in the womb, so to speak, of a blemished animal? The blemished animal cannot become an offering. But what about this? fetus, and it's a Kodesh, it becomes holy, because it is not blemished, end of chapter 15.